It's Wednesday, August 25th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is David Osman for Radio Free Oz, and I'm backstage just off the main set of Afghan Gladiator. That's that hot new TV show that gives returning vets from AFPAC a chance to go back for another tour of counterinsurgency. Exciting show, and here's the winner of tonight's contest, the former National Guardsman who already revolved through eight tours over there. It's PTSD First Class Crystal McStanley. Well, tell us something about yourself, Chris. Uh, yes, sir. Well, um, I joined the Marines when I was 18 for on-the-job training, and it sure was because, uh, like, uh, three days later, I was in AFPAC. Oh. Really? want to go back, but they said I'm too used up, so I guess I showed them up. Well, I guess you did. Well, Ed, you, you must have brought home some souvenirs or something from your last tour, right? Yeah, PTSD, night sweats, the crabs, and I used to be a woman, but the Army took care of that the last time I, I looked. Oh, really? Well, well, that's sad, uh, yet there's something comfortably uh, ironic about, about that, too, Chris. But uh, tell us all about the Afghan Gladiator Challenge. Well, sure, sir. Uh, first, there's the uh, pop-up firefights. Uh-huh. I get five points for every turban, and, and I lose five for every CD. That's collateral, collateral damage. damage. I ended up just, just over even. Uh-huh. Then there's the uh, IED swamp thing. I had to drain the swamp and replace it with a girls' school uh-huh. without blowing anybody up. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Nation building. Uh-huh. Yeah, right. Uh-huh. And then comes bribe the warlord stuff, bribe you know. Warlord. It's uh-huh. T-up or get terminated on the Kabul to freaking nowhere highway. Cost me an arm and a leg. Oh, really? Glad it wasn't mine. Uh-huh. Well, me too. Say, you survived those first three t- challenges, and, and but 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 how did the big show end up? It ended up, man, in the poppy field. You know, you have to dream your way out of it. Really? It's kind of like the war itself, huh? Well, tell me, how, how'd you do it? Well, I used my big jar here of Fratricet. It's, it's a meth-enhanced electrolyte replacement system, and it keeps me up all day. Because, yeah. see, over there, they, they, they own the day uh, and the night. It oh. really doesn't matter. Well, uh, so wait, you you won something, though, besides the, the tour to go back. Yeah, right? I get this case of Bud Light Lime. That's enough to get the general from Paris to Berlin in my new Hummer. The Army gave you a Hummer? And just the down payment, but it's got robusted air conditioning and skin seats. Well, so cool. that's your job. It's not not a tough one. You're just driving the general. No, huh? sir. Our orders are to clear hold and forget about it. Well, but what about winning the war? There's no winning, sir. It's uh, uh, just survival. Well, PTSD, First Class Crystal McSamley, that's just what you've done on Afghan Gladiator today. So from me to you, good luck on your way back to Stan. Thanks. By the way, all those countries over there are called Stan something. What does that mean? Did they tell you what that means? Yeah, sir, Stan is Muslim for pain. Afghani pain, Uzbekis pain, Paki pain, Missouri pain. (laughs) Well, no pain, no gain. Yeah, well, lots of one and uh, none of the other. But but it's a good war, sir. Uh I already signed up my unborn children to go over there and forget what I'm going to go over and uh, clear and hold. Well, it sounds like you've got it all under control, uh, Stan. And and, and this is uh, David Osmond for Radio Free Oz here at the Bob Hope Studios in Burbank, California. Oh, there it is. That sound gets me going. Radio Free Oz up on RadioFreeOz.com. Please come up and visit our expanded website. It's so Yeah, so say David Osmond, our co-host. I'm your host, Peter Bergman, and 
We rocking on, Dave. So what's up? What's up? What's up? Well, I was, uh, uh, you know, uh, Fireside Theater quotes show up in the weirdest places. Usually uh, uh, somebody sends me a Google notice. I think you do. But um, this one only appears in Harper's Magazine in a an, in an, uh, report called Happiness is a Worn Gun. My Concealed Weapon and Me by a guy named Dan Baum. And this is well into the article. He strikes Firesign Gold. Quoting, when I called Mike Stolenwork, a retired Army lieutenant colonel who is a co-founder of OpenCarry.org, he told me right away he thinks displaying a gun outside a presidential event is for the Tea Party nutties. He wants more people carrying handguns openly because we want everybody to have that right. Wearing guns openly so you can wear guns openly sounds to me like the old Firesign Theater joke about the mural depicting the historic uh, struggle of the people to finish the mural. Yeah, right. That's actually from, that's from the little guys to finish the little mural. guys to finish the mural. Gee, look, uh, let me read the title here. It says historic struggle of the little guys to finish the mural. Yeah. And we find him red handed there. Well, that's, well, look, here's a red hand. Yeah, yeah. That's that's we're trying to normalize gun ownership, he says, by openly carrying properly holstered handguns in daily life is. The, his idea of properly holstered may also include those things that where it slides quickly out from under your sleeve. Oh, I think they're it's all in your supposed hand. to do that. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, there's you know you got to have uh, you got to have your your conditions, your color coded conditions if you're a gun carrying, gun toting kind of guy. What's that? What are you well, talking about? Well, uh, the condition white. Yeah. That's well, how do we know, by the way, what the condition is? How do you signal this as a gun toter? Well, as a gun toter, if you're toting a gun, you're not in condition white, which is total oblivion to one's surroundings, like sleeping, being drunk or stoned, losing oneself in conversation while walking on city streets. You know how bad that is. Well, that's white to me. That's a whiteout. Texting while listening to an iPod. That's that's definitely all white. Okay. So you cannot be carrying while you're oh, doing that. Oh, you can't carry while you're white, man. No siree. Condition but, yellow. What about this? Is being aware of and taking an interest in one's surroundings. Ooh. Essentially, the mental state we are encouraged to achieve when we are driving. Yes. Keeping our eyes moving, checking the mirrors, being careful not to let the radio drown out the sounds around us. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Condition orange. Wait a minute, that's what we're doing right now. Wait a minute. Condition orange, that's being aware of a possible threat. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Nope. Yep. Nope. Back, back nope. to condition yellow. Yeah. Sorry. Ah, good. Condition red is responding to danger. But wait a minute. When are you supposed to carry? Which of these? Well, <clears throat> here's the thing. Contempt for condition white unifies the gun-carrying community almost as much as does fealty to the Second Amendment. When you're in condition white, you're a sheep. You're a victim. The American Tactical Shooting Association says the only time to be in condition white is when you're in your own home with the doors locked, the alarm system on, and your dog at your feet. And your woman beneath you. (laughs) Or your man. Or both. Or both. In either way. Or your dog. The instant you leave your home, you escalate one level to condition yellow. I'm leaving the house, darling. I'm going yellow. I'm going yellow. I'm packing. Yeah. Uh, A a citizen in condition white is as useless as an unarmed citizen, not only a political cipher, but a moral dud. A moral moral dud? Well, gee, Dad, I didn't realize I was a moral dud. Well, if you carried that AK openly, you'd be less of a moral dud, Skippy. Well, uh, here's condition white. Uh, If you're you're 
worried about lapsing into your conditioned white. Uh, you begin seeing yourself as a dead weight on society. A lapsed dog, uh, so to speak. A, a, a parasite, a mediocre citizen. You should constantly practice being in conditioned yellow all the time, writes a guy named Tony Walker in his book, How to Win a Gunfight. These people live in some incredible universe of yesteryear, you know? Um, of course, it's not for everyone. No, the, the including ar- me. Including us. The armed life in conditioned yellow requires being mentally prepared to kill. As John Wayne, who we like to quote, I think more often than George Washington or Thomas Jefferson, as John Wayne puts it in his last movie, and goodbye, John. The shootest, it's not always being fast or even accurate that counts. It's being willing. Yeah, you don't have to be fast. You don't have to be accurate. You can just have a lot of collateral damage, kill lots of women and children. But if you're willing to do it, then you're in the right condition. From the Gray Lady. Even as the government and international relief workers struggle to get food and clean water to millions of flood-stricken Pakistanis, concerns are growing about the enduring toll of the disaster on the nation's overall economy, food supply, and political stability. This is Pakistan. This is the linchpin of the area, and they've got nukes. The worst flooding in memory confronts Pakistan with a complex array of challenges, government and relief officials warned. Though they range over the immediate, medium, and long term, nearly all need to be addressed urgently. Providing clean water for millions and avoiding the spread of diseases like cholera are the first priorities, but there are also looming food shortages and price spikes even in cities. There is also the danger that farmers will miss the fall planting season, raising the prospect of a new cycle of shortfalls next year. We're talking about a country that may die before our very eyes. Listen, There was a first wave of deaths caused by the floods themselves, said Maurizio Guglielmo, a United Nations spokesman. But if we don't act soon enough, there will be a second wave of deaths caused by a lack of clean water, food shortages, and diseases transmitted by water or animals. The picture is a gruesome one, he says. The prospect of immediate hunger combining with long-term disruptions to food supplies was a chief concern. The situation confronting Makbol Anjun, 50, a small-scale wheat farmer in the Kanpur area of southern Punjab province, is typical. For the, for the time being, he said in an interview by telephone, we don't have food rations in our house. There isn't a single grain of flour with us right now. For the last three weeks, he said he and his family have survived on bread and pickles. There was no dry wood to light a fire in the stove. What we've been doing is breaking off legs from our wooden bed and using that. No one from the government or any relief organization has contacted them. Still, in less than two months, he and his brothers are supposed to reseed the soil on about eight acres they own for next year's wheat harvest. That may be impossible now. His seeds are lost as in the cotton crop on part of the island, along with any income it may have brought. Two of his brother's homes were destroyed. For the time being, he would try to survive on his wife's salary of $50 a month as a health worker, but the prospect of mounting debt seemed inevitable. It'll take three to four years before we can grow anything on our land again, he said. Of the 4,000 people in the village, half of them also own agricultural land and were simply wiped out. 
His struggle is multiplied by many millions across the country. The floods have submerged about 17 million acres of Pakistan's most fertile croplands in a nation where farming is an economic mainstay. The waters have also killed more than 200,000 head of livestock and washed away large quantities of stored commodities that feed millions throughout the year. This is a huge disaster, one of many. I'm not sure that the floods are based on uh, global warming. It doesn't really matter. But this has certainly become a time of major international, global, natural disasters. It seems impossible that the country could absorb the cost of the calamity on its own. Bridges, power plants, and communication networks have been lost or severely damaged across the country, a fifth of which is estimated to be underwater. A fifth! Arbab Amgir Khan, Pakistan's Minister for Communication, said damage to roads alone was estimated at $76 million. The loss of even non-food crops like cotton for the nation's textile industry could undercut the nation's ability to recover. With 20% of cotton washed away, Pakistan's famed textile industry, which accounts for 60% of the country's exports, is certain to stagger. A stagger? I'd say collapse. As a result, textile plants are likely to make large-scale layoffs. Oh, that's good. Larger army of the unemployed. Plants that do manage to purchase cotton will face electricity shortages as more than seven major power stations have been demolished. While dire conditions threaten rural communities, severe inflation and shortages of fresh produce loom for even large urban centers relatively unaffected by the floods, like Karachi. Karachi relies on Punjab for about 70% of its fresh foods and has fed itself on food stored in warehouses since the floods arrived in late July. But even those supplies will be depleted by the end of this week, according to local officials and wholesale food suppliers. And the small quantities of Punjab produce that survived the floods are now held up by distribution and transportation. Already, prices of fresh foods have more than doubled in Karachi's markets, and the city's food retail association and government officials expect prices to rise by a multiple of six within the week. Any a dollar uh, loaf of bread, that's a $6 loaf of bread. That's not a $3 cut of lamb. That's an $18 cut of lamb. You don't like it? Go starve. Shobib Bukhari, a provincial minister in charge of food pricing in Sin province, has pleaded with wholesalers and retailers to adhere to prices fixed by the government. But, of course, he expected the worst. May God bless me, he said, but there will be a catastrophe here in the next five to ten days, he said. There will definitely be a hue and cry here, strikes and large-scale problems. We'll be hiding somewhere, and people will be beating up the city government. Adding to Karachi's worries and potential volatility, many of those displaced by the floods in rural areas have migrated there to the city. Last summer, when monsoon rains paralyzed the city for three days, residents responded by attacking the offices of Karachi's power supply company. Economists argue that the only viable solution, as is often the case in Pakistan, will be international loans that allow at least five-year concessions for Pakistan to pay off the debt. Uh, there are other alternatives, but you know the biggest problem, and I'm just going to, it, 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 it's what they call the Mullah Marxist Nexus. This is according to Abib Solari, the head of the uh, one of the local institutes, uh, the Sustainable Development Policy Institute, and one of the nation's leading experts on food insecurity. It's a class conflict exploited by mullahs who say, if you are living in misery, it's better to at least kill the infidels. 
I mean, we did a we did a piece called "Dining at the Black Flag" uh, uh, last week. Basically, what we're going to find in this extremis is that the extreme fundamental Islamic organizations, well organized, are going to come in and save the day, and Pakistan is going to turn into an even deeper um, arsenal of Islamic fundamentalism. What are we going to do? Take over Afghanistan, which we can't to protect their borders. We've got we've got soldiers already illegally in Pakistan. This is a horrible situation. You can say the gray heads can say it's very complicated, Peter, and there's things you don't know, and there are strategies we can't explain. Yeah, I'll bet. The situation is we're hurting at home. We can't protect our own people. We can't protect them. We're doing it all from the military point of view. Instead of empowering the United Nations, this is an international crisis. Why don't we become international in our thinking? Why are we shriveling our souls? Well, it's not often that I agree with Sarah Palin. What? I despise her. You know, and, and I used to think that she was just a frivolous quitter, uh-huh. but she's a lot more dangerous than I thought. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. she has involved herself in the Dr. Laura quitting over the N-word situation. Oh, right. yes. Isn't right. that a big pop story? Well, it's, it's, let me read you what a blogger named Gawker wrote into uh, Talking Points Memo, and we can talk Even about NPR it. Even NPR was doing this story this morning. But go ahead. And, Let's and, find and there's some an, value in and it. Well, there's, there's a special codicil that you okay. like that's personal. Did, and this is what Gawker said. Did you know that the First Amendment gives every American the right to a nationally syndicated radio show? I sure didn't, but I learned that it's true from former governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin. She told me, sometimes it feels like you can't go five minutes without learning something from Sarah Palin, assistant professor of folksy wisdom at half-understood university. Today, we were treated to some wisdom on the Constitution when Doc Palin decided to weigh in on the troubling plight of conservative radio host Laura Schlesinger. See, Dr. Laura, as she is affectionately known, not by me, recently decided to resign after being widely condemned for a radio broadcast cast where she used the N-word several times, just because Sarah Palin, like all real Americans, was outraged and took to her native mode of communication, the Twitter, to express her emotions. I want to read the Twitter to you and explain it. says, Sarah's Doc- Twitter. Dr. Laura, colon, don't retreat, dot, 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 reload, steps aside, because, B.C., her first amend rights ceased to exist because two activists trying to silence. Isn't America not fair? This is, this, yeah, she's really right. talking now. <clears throat> well, or, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's just inarticulate syllables, but what hap- she means something. Yeah, what happened ahead. was that Laura Schlesinger was talking about the incongru- incongruous situation that on HBO and various other shows, African-Americans can use the N-word in relationship to one another, often felicitously. You know, it's like almost like, hello, hi, guy, you know, hi, buddy. Mm-hmm. But someone, she said, with not enough melanin, I think was her expression, says it, and they get in terrible trouble. But she used the N-word like 11 times. She says, you know, you know, it's always N-word, N-word, N-word. Why can't I say N-word, N-word, N-word? She just flew at it, right? And there was this huge outcry. And in response, she quit. She wasn't fired by all at all. She quit. And the interesting thing is, yeah. is that you know where her home base is? What? Okay. I worked for two years on a CBS radio station in L.A., a great radio station called KFWB. And all of a sudden, it was turned upside down. I and the rest of the staff, almost except for like four people, were fired. And in walks Laura Schlesinger. 
it became her, what do you call it, your home base. Really? Her, her state of grace, yeah. And a bunch of other right-wing schmageggies. Yet everybody so, had to go. Just about. There were like four, five, six people stayed. At first, they fired half of us. I was low man on the totem pole. I'd come in early, you know, and I was doing, you know, overnight. And then they got rid of everybody else except for like four or five people. And then because, oh, Laura's here. And now Laura's quit. Not fired, just condemned and quit. Okay, so the blogger says, all right, I don't know what you're thinking. How were Dr. Laura's First Amendment rights violated? Isn't she just receiving heavy criticism for her casual use of an offensive racial slur on the radio? And isn't that criticism, in fact, a beautiful example of the First Amendment, which is designed to, as Supreme Court Justice William Douglas put it, invite dispute and create dissatisfaction? Hmm? These questions arise from a mistaken reading of the First Amendment, because now we've got Palin's reading. Is this the blogger is yeah, still talking yeah, here? Yeah, okay. Says, Unfortunately, shared by most constitutional scholars, this mistake is that when a person's rights to freedom of speech are not violated by vigorous criticism or public condemnation. As Professor Palin implies, a correct reading of the First Amendment endows every American with a right to host a radio show and to use the N-word without even being criticized. And when Dr. Laura was criticized by disgusting activists and decided to resign, it was an abhorrent example of Congress making laws to abridge the freedom of speech and basically means the U.S. is now under Sharia law. <laughs> wait, 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 wait. Congress didn't have anything to do with it. No, but he's being, you know, he's, he's being... He's exaggerating. Yeah, in other words, that, that, you know, and so Palin's got it all upside down, but people don't have the brains to figure it out. Yeah, why should she have to quit just because she used the N-word? Uh... She didn't, well, she wasn't fired. She quit because she was, I mean... So maybe her marriage is bad. Maybe her dog is sick. I don't know. So when I said I agreed with uh, Palin, yeah. it, it, she'd made some earlier statements. And I also think, although it, it, it was it was not properly handled, the fact is there is a real disconnect between the ability to use the N-word if you're an African-American and to use it or not use it and the consequences thereof if you're a non-African-American. See, it's it's the okay, no okay, And it's so charged. I mean, it's it's amazing. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful look at American society, right, based on words. And um, it's because people lack a sense of humor. They can't see anything in context. Everything has to be taken outside of context and weighed as to its correctness in that sense. Well, it's, I think that the case is that there is nothing long. Everything is only as long as you can shoot with your iPhone. So, so obviously, it, there's no long statements. It's just what's abridged and what is delivered in sound bites to the public. I think the whole thing is... Like um, a tempest in a tea party. From USA Today, U.S. astronomers every decade prioritize their goals and the gadgets, spacecraft, and telescopes needed to reach them. Astronomers have decided that they plan to discover alternate Earths and figure out the origins of the first stars, galaxies, and black holes. You know, in a perfect world, that would be our major problems. Those would be our major challenges, not getting us out of the rest of the world where we don't belong, not, not solving hunger and disease and abuse, but basically looking for alternate Earths. 
It is a consensus achieved through commitment involving hundreds of astronomers, says Ralph Cicerone, head of the National Academy of Sciences. Some research topics emerge as winners, exploded stars, called supernovas, and alien planets, while others are pushed to the next decade. In the last decade, astronomers have found more than 400 planets orbiting nearby stars, learned that supermassive black holes lurk at the center of most galaxies, and determined the age of the universe, about 13.7 billion years. Now, I think the universe is happy with Obama's medical reform. When you're that old, you need all the help you can get. The report sets as a primary goal, learning how the first stars formed, finding the closest habitable Earth-like planets beyond the solar system, and probing dark energy, the mysterious force accelerating expansion of galaxies apart from one another throughout the cosmos. And I learned recently, and it's a mind blower, that most of the mass in the universe is dark mass that we can't see and hardly feel, only kind of get the secondary effects. It's like discovering a planet by studying the perturbations of the orbit of a nearby planet. Okay, here are some of the top priorities coming up for the astronomers, if there's any money left to buy any of this stuff. The Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, a $1.6 billion space telescope to be launched in 2020 that will eyeball exploding stars and gravity-distorted views of galaxies for clues to dark energy as well as detecting habitable worlds orbiting stars in the center of our Milky Way galaxy. The spacecraft would fly a 10-foot-wide telescope mirror in an orbital path balanced between the gravitational pull of the Earth and the Sun. I love it. To me, this is romance. The Large Synoptic Survey Telescope. It's only, it's a deal. Hey, for you, 465 million. Telescope will be in Chile uh, by 2018 and would investigate the report's priority areas, as well as near-Earth asteroids and dwarf planets beyond Neptune in our own solar system. The telescope would see the entire night sky once every three days. Talk about taking a look. And new worlds, thereafter new worlds. A $4 million per year study to design telescopes that will be able to directly see habitable planets detected by missions such as the one just discussed and the now-flying Kepler Space Telescope. We're putting the universe at your fingertips, said astronomer Kirk Bourne of George Mason University, noting the uh, telescope's observations create enough data to nightly fill a million DVDs. Every night they fill a million DVDs. Hey, some of my hacker friends out there, hey, you know, eat your heart out, man. And uh, all of this stuff will be made available to the public through sky-watching applications hosted by Google and Microsoft. Yeah, just go up to Google and, uh, you know, punch up the latest or the closest habitable universe when mom is giving you real trouble. I have Scott Wild on the Skype line. How you doing, Scott? I'm doing excellent. I'm excited about this uh, new launch of Radio Free Oz. Yeah, it's it's a big deal, and uh, I'd like you to tell the listeners out there what's going on and how we can uh, have them help us participate in this and and build the site and and get more clicks and more pages so that advertisers will come on and keep us alive. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the first thing is, is we've launched the site. And since the launch last week, um, we've added quite a few features to the site, like the uh, new comics page. We've added some more bumper stickers into the mix. 
And now that we've sort of gotten our feet wet and, and we've started to build some new features on the site, it's now time to start telling the world. So if you're listening to this and you've got a website that you're currently in the process of launching, um, this will be the, the point of your launch phase that now it's time to start telling the world and uh, getting people to participate and start, the, start to engage them in the conversation and, and get them to help spread the word about the site, which is what exactly what we're doing with Radio Free Oz. Um, last night, you and I uh, set up the new Twitter account for Radio Free Oz, which is twitter.com slash Oz Network. So if you want to find the Radio Free Oz show on Twitter, all you have to do is just send a message to at symbol or at Oz Network and type in your message and that's going to uh, go right to Peter. Right, And so uh, yeah, we're going to ma- be making announcements now and everything that happens on the site, every time we have a new bumper sticker, every time we have a new show, every time we add some more comic art, we're going to make a broadcast uh, through the blog on the site that will automatically get pushed out to Facebook, our Facebook fan page, and also the Twitter posts. So for those people that are following along, if you want to stay in tune and you want to know what's going on in the world of Radio Free Oz, what's new, and take advantage of some special offers that we have coming up, go out to Twitter right now, uh, go to twitter.com slash Network and click on the little follow button and start to follow and encourage as many of your friends and family to follow along um, so that you can help spread the word. So every time that we post a message about maybe a hot new bumper sticker that we've got, um, all they have to do is the way that they can help and the way that you start to build relationships in Twitter is by retweeting that message out to their audience and help to start spread the word. Really, that's kind of the way business works. And it's not just about who can help us. But, you know, those people that engage with the show the most often, you know, we're, simple, we're, we're, we're certainly going to reciprocate and help retweet some of their information. So if you have stuff that's important, you know, that's what the, the two-way communication and the dialogue on the social media platform is all about. It's about helping each other. So we can certainly, as we build our audience, you know, help others spread the word about what they're doing as well, too. And that's just all about building a relationship. Um, and, I want and, I want to be known as Retweet Pete. Retweet Pete, <laughs> no, I love it. No retreat, retweet, right? <laughs> Absolutely. Or what yep. Palin says, don't retreat, reload. No, don't retreat, retweet. It sounds like I sound like the little canary bird, but that's okay. <laughs> yeah, we need to build people's presence on the website. A lot, a lot of folks are just taking the podcast through iTunes automatically. Get up in the morning, click, they got Oz in their ears, but they're not up on the site. And for us to encourage advertisers, we've got to show them that we have warm clicks on board. And, and yep. you're the very people that we need to help us with this. Absolutely, and, the, and it's a perfect way to make suggestions or ask questions of certain guests or ask questions mm-hmm. of the hosts of either David or Peter or uh, Dave Maloney sitting over there. You know, I mean, it, if they want to get involved in the show, Twitter is the absolute perfect vehicle for doing that. So, uh, and we're going to tell, we're going to talk a little bit more about, you know, in the, in 
future episodes about what Twitter can do and, and how to really take it kind of to the next level because there's so many people out there, Peter, that they've heard of Twitter. Maybe they have an account. You know, there's 70 million Twitter users, right. but there's also a 40% abandonment rate because people set up a Twitter account and then they tweet a couple times and then they figure, oh, geez, nobody's following me and, and uh, you know, I don't know what to say next. So we're going to talk about really how do you use it to build those relationships and how do you really help other people and how do you weed out all the crap you don't want to hear right and really right. find the stuff that means something to you so next so, next time we're going to talk about hootsuite yes hootsuite absolutely and how we're using this awesome new tool uh to really keep our ear to the ground and, and hear what's going on and start those conversations absolutely it's a it's a groundbreaking uh application for us thank you so much scott we'll be back soon okay looking forward to it
President Obama's position in support of the right of a Muslim organization to build a community center near Ground Zero in New York is now picking up the endorsement of a very prominent 9-11 widower, former Bush administration Solicitor General Ted Olson. Olson's wife, the late conservative author and activist Barbara Olson, was a passenger aboard the plane that was hijacked and flown into the Pentagon. Recently, Olson said this on Andrea Mitchell's MSNBC show. Well, it may not make me popular with some people, but I think possibly the president was right about this, Olson said. I do believe that people of all religions have a right to build edifices or structures or places of religious worship or study where the community allows them to do it under zoning laws and that sort of thing, and that we don't want to turn an act of hate against us by extremists into an act of intolerance for people of religious faith. And I don't think it should be a political issue. It shouldn't be a Republican or Democratic issue either. I believe Governor Christie from New York said it well, that this should not be in that political, partisan marketplace. Olson, right on. We are doing ourselves an immense disservice. It does make me wonder just how thin the education of America is, how, how, how little appreciation they have of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, that they're not grounded in the very thing that made America great. They may use the terms now and then, but there's no Bill of Rights in, in, a, in a reality show. There's no Bill of Rights, you know, uh, on 24. All you've got is a bullet of rights on 24. And, you know, that's, that's not how it gets done. We've got to become more tolerant. And I believe this is a cry in a wasted night. Yes, we've got a lot of everything in this land of ours. And a lot of places to put it in. And maybe that's where you fit in. Mr. and Mrs. John Q. Smith from Anytown, USA. Come on, big fella. Take this guitar, put on this wide belt work shirt, and tell it like it was. The health-conscious blog Care2 asks, So... Is it time to kick Ronald McDonald to the curb? Corporate Accountability International says it is. In a press release, Deborah Lapidus, senior organizer of the nonprofit group, had this to say. This clown is no friend to our children or their health. No icon has ever been more effective in hooking kids on a harmful product. Kids have become more obese and less healthy on his watch. He's a deep-fried Joe Camel for the 21st century. He deserves a break. <laughs> he deserves a break, and so do our kids. A national poll finds that close to half the public wants Ronald McDonald to retire. How about that? 20% think Obama's a Muslim, and half of them want Mc Ronald McDonald to check out. Close to 60% of Americans pin the blame for childhood obesity on the fast food industry. Well, then stop going! Childhood obesity and type 2 diabetes has risen dramatically over the past 30 years. While the popular clown can't shoulder the blame alone, Corporate Accountability International says that McDonald's spends more than a billion dollars a year on marketing in the U.S., much of it aimed directly at children. It was 1963 when Ronald McDonald made his corporate debut, appealing to very young children, building brand loyalty that could last a lifetime. Things were different back then. Fast food was not something to be indulged in every day, but an occasional treat, you know? Now it's changed. We've come a long way since the 60s. 
Fast food restaurants crowd the landscape, alluring young customers with high-calorie foods that have little nutritional value. Fast food has infiltrated the daily diet of many children, sometimes served multiple times a day, and is clearly a major contributor to the problem of childhood obesity and its related health problems. In his favor, the cheerful clown also lends his name to the Ronald McDonald House Charities, a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping children. Why doesn't he just stay there? Ronald McDonald houses are located around the world and offer families a place to stay when children are undergoing hospital treatment. It's a fine thing. That's where Ronald is your friend. Just keep him out of the out of the toy and fast food, bad food, over-fried, diabetes type 2 trap food. So the question is, has Ronald McDonald lived beyond his prime? Would his retirement have a, a meaningful effect on childhood obesity? Is it time to hand Ronald his gold watch? Well, Caretu says they believe the problem is larger and more complicated than that. Ronald McDonald, junk food pusher, or just a convenient fall guy. And here's more trouble for Ronald McDonald. The nonprofit Center for Science and the Public Interest served McDonald's with notice of its intent to sue over unfair and deceptive marketing by using toys to lure small children into McDonald's. Yes, bring me your small children and I will fatten them up. Uh, CSPI litigation director Stephen Gardner says McDonald's is the stranger in the playground handing out candy to children. McDonald's use of toys undercuts parental authority and exploits young children's inability to choose between good food and bad. All it does is create bad health and bad lives. Hello, Ozineers. That's what I call the couple grand of you who every day download this show and put it in your ears. I have a favor, okay? I'm looking for some of you to help us promote Radio Free Oz on Twitter. This is one of the ways we're going to market this show and monetize it. We have just set up our new Twitter account. We'd love to connect with you. All you need to do is go to twitter.com slash oznetwork and click the follow button. See ya. Well, you know, Peter, back in the uh, in the Middle East, there are things going on. I, I presume that you and all of our listeners have heard of Iran's new long-range drone aircraft. Ambassador of death. Uh-huh. Well, there's just this great quote. Since we've learned how to pronounce Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. 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 We should quote him. Their new weapon is a messenger of glory and salvation for humanity. <laughs> But an ambassador of death. And it's a drone. We, it's a drone, we were, I know. We oh, were yeah. so, such hubris to think that we could make all these drones and somebody wouldn't drone us in return. This is just the beginning, Mr. Ahmadinejad told military officials, the only people he can talk to. Today, the defense of Iran is identical with the defense of the existence of humanity. That's good. He thinks big. Those as, Persians, as man, been, no, no boundaries to those Persians. They've been around for a long time. Iran's first ever domestically built satellite is featured now on their 5,000 rial banknote, mm -hmm. which is worth 50 cents. Well, it's now worth 50 cents because they spent all that money making and up that satellite. Making the drone. Mr. Ahmadinejad's recent promise to put the first Iranian astronaut into space within 15 years was anticipated in February by the dispatch into outer space of a mouse, two turtles, and a box of earthworms. Okay, that's it. There's nowhere I can go with that. <laughs> Where can you go? Where can you go with that? Well, you can go to Afghan and the Afghanistan and the training of the army. They're having some trouble over there. The uh, the um, uh, little problem is that, of course, they're blowing 
the army up or the soldier, the police up at a and rapid And they're training rate. him, and they train him so well they can get a better job somewhere else. Well, and more pay from the from, you know from the enemy. Another major problem, said some general, General Caldwell, uh, is illiteracy. The vast majority of Afghan recruits cannot read and write in their own language, meaning that basic tasks like knowing the serial number of your weapon are impossible. As a result, the United States, aren't we the blessedest country Here in the world? Here we come world, to the rescue. Yes, has started a basic literacy program with 27,000 recruits currently enrolled and an expectation that 100,000 will be in the program by next summer. General Caldwell continues with his lucid remarks. We're not trying to make high school graduates. Our intent is to give them enough to have the ability to do certain key things for the professionalization of the force. Uh, That's not that force. That's another force. For example, he said, if they're issued equipment and told that they're supposed to have four shirts, three pairs of pants, and two pairs of boots on a piece of paper, they can actually read that and then look at the equipment instead of being reliant on somebody else to do it for them. Oh. oh, oh! Now, when they, when we make them literate, they'll actually be able to look at that bullet and see that their name is on it. It's really on it, right there. Hey, you know, doing this is hard work. What makes it hard work sometimes, and I'm not complaining, I'm just kind of analyzing what it's like to, to put this kind of daily show together, is I have to wade through the numbskull thinking of these GOP candidates. I have to because you have to know what these bozos are thinking and saying. No, not thinking, just saying. The latest is the shift amongst GOP candidates across this great country of ours to deny global warming. Fueled by anti-Obama rhetoric and news articles purportedly showing scientists manipulating their own data, Republicans running for the House, Senate, and the governor's mansions have gotten bolder in stating their doubts over the well-established link between man-made greenhouse gas emissions and global warming. Their doubts. Like, I give a penny for their doubts. Does it come from research? You know, GOP candidate so-and-so emerging from the library with stacks of books, scratches his head and says, I'm not sure if this is a done deal. No, these blabbermouths listen to Glenn Beck or some other nefarious bozo and come back and start spouting it. They're just, they're just robots. GOP climate skeptics have held powerful positions on Capitol Hill in recent years, yeah, under Bush, including the chairmanship of the House Energy and Senate Environmental Panels, but they've typically been among the minority. Now they could form a key voting block, adding insult to injury for climate advocates who failed to pass an energy bill this year. Environmental groups fear that adding more voices to the skeptic camp could further polarize the debate and make it more difficult at all levels of government to pass legislation curbing carbon dioxide emissions, especially if coupled with the defeat of standard bearers such as Senator Barbara Boxer of California, who's up against the former head of Hewlett-Packard, whom I performed in front of in a club in Miami many years ago. Uh, one of <laughs> So I got a chance to dig her eyeball to eyeball. I have no idea if she's a global warming denier, but I wouldn't be the least surprised if she'll deny anything to beat Barbara Boxer. Ron Johnson, here's here's a GOP candidate running against Wisconsin Democrat uh, Russ Feingold, one of the best in the Senate, is the latest in the line of Republicans to take a shot at the validity of global warming. Here's what he says. I absolutely do not believe in the science of man-caused climate change, he told the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. 
it's not proven by any stretch of the imagination. No stretch of his imagination. (laughs) No, not that tiny rubber band he calls an imagination. Johnson told the newspaper that the climate change theory was lunacy and blame changes in the Earth's temperature to sunspot activity or just something in the geologic eons of time. He's giving me a brain headache. Similar remarks have been heard from GOP candidates in all parts of the country, even as mainstream climate scientists defend their work from a steady line of attack. Remember, who benefits from downgrading the concept of global warming? It's people who put vast amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Who are they? If you have to figure it out, you should be voting for these guys. Four independent reviews have concluded that the so-called ClimateGate emails stolen last fall from the United Kingdom Research Unit showed nothing more than a frank discussion among scientists working through large and complicated sets of data. And while the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has admitted it aired in its 2007 report by citing a report concluding Himalayan glaciers could disappear by 2035, the Nobel Prize-winning UN organization said the mistake didn't undermine its larger body of work. And of course, it didn't. But any opening to these GOP right-wingers, any opening to support those, you know, those greedy polluters who put the money in their pocket, any opening's good enough for them. They don't care because they don't have any critical thinking faculties. In California, Republican Senate nominee Carly Fiorina, I talked about Carly there uh, down in uh, Miami, used a recent ad to mock Environment and Public Works Committee uh, Chairwoman Boxer for her description of climate change as a national security issue. <laughs> yes, and she didn't figure that out on her own. There are major Pentagon papers telling us that climate change and the lack of water, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, is the single largest national security threat we face. Ah. So what does Fiorina say? Terrorism kills and Barbara Boxer's worried about the weather, the Fiorina ad said. (laughs) Oh my, oh my, I just want to, well, Ken Buck, Colorado's Republican Senate nominee, is also on record saying he's not a believer in man-made global warming. I'll tell you, I have looked at global warming, now climate change from both sides. (laughs) I've looked at climate change from both sides now. He said in March on the Aaron Harbor Show, a weekly Denver interview program, and I don't believe, while I think the earth is warming, I don't think that causes are the primary factor. That causes? This man doesn't even believe in causes. He is really a blank slip. I don't think that causes are the primary factor for global warming, and, and, I, and I'm one of those people that Al Gore refers to as a skeptic. I think he calls them a denier, Harbor said. Deniers, Buck said, oh, okay, okay, I'm one of those folks. Every time Obama comes on the TV, which I watch Fox News all during the day, I switch a channel to the Hallmark Channel to figure he's gone, then I switch it back. Well, here's a further account of my favorite weasel, Mitch McConnell. It's from the New Republic. Mitch McConnell is careful with his words, so this dog whistle message to the far right during his Meet the Press appearance today is notable. McConnell, the president says he's a uh, the president says he's a uh, Christian. Uh, I take him at his word. I don't think that's in dispute. The interviewer. And do you think how how do you think it comes to be that this kind of misinformation gets spread around and prevails? McConnell, I have no idea, but I take the president at his word. 
To say that you take him at his word means two things. First of all, it suggests that the president's word is the only information we have to go on here. Of course, that's absurd. Second, it further suggests that the evidence being weak or inconclusive, McConnell is taking the high road by accepting Obama's testimony. The formulation is a sly way of siding with the truth so that he can't be pillared by the media while subtly suggesting that he is open to the views of Americans who think Obama is a Muslim. And of course, if reporters recognize the sneaky little game he's playing and demand a stronger formulation, all the better. It gets more chatter about Obama and possibly being a Muslim into the news. Oh, McConnell used this formulation twice, by the way. It's not an accident. This is the minority leader of the United States Senate. This weasel, this scumbag who, as part of this poisonous campaign of misinformation, to scare the American public into believing that our president is a Muslim and by connotation, a leader of the terrorists, Saladin arisen, right? Uh, a, 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 an anchor baby for Islam. And McConnell doesn't have the cojones and he's too sly and too greedy to stand up and say, this is bullshit. Of course he's a Christian. Everybody knows he's a Christian. That's not the issue. Here are my political differences with the President of the United States. No, these people have so little to stand on. They have no platform. They've got nothing. So all they can do is spread fear about the fact that our President is a Muslim. We are in deep shit. Uh, Dave, we've been getting, as I say, blog posting on the archives, and people are really happy with your reading of the Tang. One person says, folks who are into poetry slams should know, after listening to you, that poetry is more than just a way of uh, cloaking a bad performance. So. Oh, performance art is all over out there, and I suppose, you know, it's it's good for the young. Yeah. But this is really good for everybody. Often the young and untalented at heart. But uh -huh, who's to uh -huh. tell? But you can't tell because they're so young. Who knows? Anyway, this is Lee Poe. Oh, about <clears throat> seven, 760 or something like that. Good time in the evening to write a poem. <clears throat> Here we go. Last year we made war for the Mulberry Brooks Springs. This year we make war for the Garlic Streams Bed. We have washed our swords in Antioch's waves. We have grazed our mounts on the Pamir's snows. For thousands of miles our expeditions go till the three armies' men are worn and old. But the Huns look on killing like tilling their fields. White bones, all they grow on their yellow sands. House of Chin built the wall to keep them apart. House of Han has to keep the beacons alight. Beacons alight, and they never go out, for these expeditions have never an end. In the line, hand to hand, they'll die the same. The horses will fall, call to heaven their pain. The crows and the kites pick their riders' guts and fly to dead trees with the bits in their beaks. Where captains and men paint the grasses red, our generals without a plan in his head. You surely know war is an ill-omened tool that never was used except by a fool. Ooh, we know fools here at Radio Free Oz. Uh, well, the show uh, must come to an end like all good things and begin again tomorrow like all good things. RadioFreeOz.com 
tweet us at uh, twitter.com slash oznetwork and we'll be with you tomorrow.